Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce this evening's event, Art Under State Control, which is part of our Provocations in Art series, exploring contemporary themes um, connected to our exhibition programme. Tonight's event draws on the RA's current exhibition, Revolution Russian Art 1917-1932, as its starting point to examine the influence the state can have on artists and creativity. From explicit intervention to more subtle methods of influence, our panel will be discussing the different relationships and interactions between art and the state and their impact on the cultural sector. We have a great panel here to discuss the issues tonight. We're delighted to have award-winning artist Edmund Clark and curator, museum director and writer David Elliott on the panel, who I have no doubt will be providing plenty of discussion, expertly guided by journalist and broadcaster Kirsty Lang, who I would now like to hand over to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I'll just, let me just tell you a little bit more about um, our two guests. So uh, David is a, a museum curator, a director, a writer about modern uh, and contemporary art. He's recently come back to the UK, having spent 20 years overseas, living in Berlin, living in Kiev, Moscow, Tokyo, Stockholm, a whole list of places, Istanbul. Um, and he's perfect for this discussion because he was the artistic director of the uh, first Biennale of Contemporary Art in Kiev, uh, the fourth Biennale of Young Art in Moscow. He's curated a, a large number of exhibitions internationally, including one on uh, Rodchenko, another on Mayakovsky, art in production, Russian revolutionary ceramics and textile designs. And if you've seen the exhibition downstairs, uh, you, would have, you would have seen some of, of that work. Um, art and Power, Europe under the Dictators, 1933 to 1945, which is an exhibition at the, at the Hayward Gallery and Balagan, contemporary art from the former Soviet Union and other mythical places, and that was uh, in Berlin in 2015. And then we have Edmund Clark, who's an award-winning artist whose work links history, politics, representation. And a lot of Edmund's work is um, inspired, I should say, by, by state repression. And you can still see his very thought-provoking show about the war on terror, and I'd really urge you to go, it's fantastic, at the Imperial War Museum. And it's a multimedia show that creates a, a quite an immersive experience through photographs, and audio, video, um, letters, documenting the war on terror. Um, Edmund was able to go into the homes of, of former Guantanamo uh, Bay prisoners and talk to them. Um, he also went to the seemingly random locations where people suspected of terror-related activity were, were picked up um, um, uh, and then became uh, victims of the extraordinary rendition um, uh, process um, and transported to prisons in Egypt, Afghanistan, and so on. And he's also worked uh, in Afghanistan where he was uh, embedded with the British troops. So that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about as, as well as interacting um, with, with the, the repressive arms of, of, of the state, um, not just in totalitarian regimes, but also in um, Western liberal democracies. So let's start, um, David, with quite a broad question, which is, can there be creativity under totalitarian regimes? Well, certainly. I mean, I've had direct experience, both historically and actually, um, of them. And uh, while I wouldn't say you need to have totalitarianism to make good art, um, artists work um, in whatever context they find themselves in. And totalitarianism isn't always an absolute thing. Sometimes it is, but there's kind of relative totalitarianism. Just a censorship. 
I mean, there's censorship that comes from above, but there's also self-censorship. And so, uh, uh, no, uh, you have to have good artists to make good art. And you find these all over the world, thank God. But what's the... And, and, and here, let's talk about, uh, specifically, uh, Soviet uh, Russia. What, what's the impact on, on creativity when there is no freedom of expression? Well, um, in Soviet Russia, it's... Um, it's kind of a little bit hard to trace it from the exhibition, but there, it was a, a kind of gradual um, tightening down of the screws. And the exhibition ends, really, with uh, high-flown Stalinism. But there's a lot of processes that go on before then. Until 1928, things were relatively free. Um, 1926, there was the first, uh, first glimmers in St. Petersburg, although, surprisingly, in Moscow, it was, it was much easier to do things. And there was a huge period of incredibly free creativity. Um, so you had poets like Mayakovsky working with Alexander Rodchenko. Uh, they were creating the first ad agency in 1922-1923 in Moscow, um, where they were doing little jingles and texts. Um, so, nigde kromie kak promie. Nowhere else but in the Musselprom department store will you find the only thing that comes from the old world is stara world, old world papyrossi cigarettes. So all these little jingles and stories that they're putting together. This is Mad Men in Tokyo, in, in Tokyo. Tokyo, Moscow. Moscow. Because yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you had an explosion of, of graphic art, didn't you? Because they needed, the state needed artists in a largely illiterate society um, to, uh, to explain to the people what was going on. Absolutely correct. During the period of war communism, you have Mayakovsky's posters. You see some copies of them, of them here. And then in the new economic policy, which follows that immediately, civil war absolutely destroyed the country. And they had to get private enterprise in. And uh, so Mayakovsky and Rodchenko were working for the state enterprises. And that's what they were uh, promoting, advertising in different ways. Now, I know you've got some actually really interesting images. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to Soviet Russia, but let's actually switch now to, to, to Nazi Germany um, and, and, and see what was happening in art there, because I think you've got some quite interesting images uh, for, to show us relating to that. Yes, sure. We're talking about the process and the complexity of what was happening in, um, in Russia from 1928 to 1932, and it's a period that the historians call the Cultural Revolution. I mean, China had one too, but they had the first one in the Soviet Union. And it starts off really with the party um, encouraging the formation of proletarian groups in all factors of the arts, so writing, music, filmmaking, painting, photography. So um, everything becomes uh, proletarian. And then no one quite knew what proletarian art was, except that it was injecting the class war into art. And so um, one group argued with another group. Some people said, you're more proletarian than we are. Um, Mayakovsky, whose proletarian credentials were wonderful, he'd been locked up as a young boy as a revolutionary. He was told, you are not understood by the masses. You are a bourgeois formalist. Rodchenko had the same thing. And you get this getting more and more going around in a vicious circle hysterically. And this painting here by Solomon Nikritin, the Ukrainian artist, uh, uh, A People's Court of 1934. Now, 1934 rather than 1932 was the crucial time 
because that was the all-Union Soviet Writers' Congress in Moscow, where writers from all over the world came, and Andrei Zhdanov, who, who became afterwards uh, Stalin's uh, son-in-law, uh, said that you know, artists in future have to be engineers of the human souls. And you have to work in revolutionary reality. Again, no one knew what this meant quite, but they and, knew it was difficult. And of course, you know, after the revolution with the closure of private galleries and the end of private collections, all the artists are competing for the attention of one single sponsor, the state, which makes life quite difficult for them, isn't it? Yes, but I mean, that, that, the state had many faces. I mean, uh, uh, they, they realised that they had to have different units. Uh, the museums were set up all over the country, and uh, they had a a policy until the end of the 20s to buy new avant-garde art as well as established art uh, by emerging artists. And so, they saw museums as, as important in educating the people. Oh, absolutely. And they sent trains all across the country, uh, so-called so agit, agitational trains, which had printing presses on them, paintings on the sides to, to again, inform people. So artists were an important part of the revolution. Very much so. Very much so. Um, you know, on one level, it's propaganda. On another level, it's, uh, it's kind of opening up new possibilities and work for artists in different ways, of which the ceramics and the textiles... Well, I know you aspect. curated an exhibition about revolutionary ceramics, and I, and I was fascinated when I went to see the, the, the show um, here. Um, uh, uh, how, how, how beautiful some of it are. I mean, if you think, you know, uh, they were forced to, if you like, make ceramics representing revolutionary themes, you'd think it'd be rather awful, but it wasn't. No, they have the very best artists, uh, uh, actual artists and uh, ceramic artists, which there are many in um, uh, pre-revolutionary Russia, now working on these new ideas. They uh, combine folk art, some of them, some of them Malievich with his abstract supremative works. He has a whole group working around him. And the state Lomonosov uh, porcelain factory in, uh, in Petrograd um, was, uh, was really producing very, very high-quality products in small runs for an export market, largely. Let's flick through, yeah, sure. through some more of these um, images. Well, that's made in the same year, and talking about repression, it's a still from a film by Alec, uh, Alexander uh, uh, Medvedev called Happiness. And uh, it's a great satirical uh, um, film about uh, what was going on in the old world, the fate of a, a peasant who had to carry a donkey on his back, and these are the ladies, the nuns in the church. Uh, um, it's a bit raunchier than anything you'll see downstairs. Uh, it was produced, it was finished, it wasn't released until the 60s. Uh, 1934 is getting a little bit hairy uh, by then. Uh, things have started appearing very hysterically in the press, and as I said, it's the same year. But, as in the, the, but it was shown in the 60s in the Soviet Union, in the yes, 60s. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. No, it was so post-Khrushchev, yeah. Yeah. Well, during Khrushchev's during time. Khrushchev, yeah. yeah, during the thaw, so-called the thaw. Yeah. Um, then we move on to, uh, I mean, this is a famous shot from the Paris International Exhibition of 1937, where you have the three uh, totalitarian countries together. You see fascist Italy in the foreground, uh, Russia in the middle ground there with uh, Vera Mukin as the collective farm worker and the, and, the, and, the, and the industrial worker together. And then the, the Nazi one on the far, far right here for you, uh, the Nazi pavilion there. So they're facing it down in 37. And then the strange 
phenomenon of, of Nazi art. I mean, this is an Albert Speer, a very famous picture. I mean, they, they, they like to do very grand, big things, and sometimes uh, in this classical mode. And they knew what they didn't like, and it was degenerate, and it was Bolshevik, and it was Jewish, and it was just generally nasty, deformed, and uh, this whole theory of degeneracy was eugenic, I mean, from the very beginning. Max Nordau, at the end of the 19th century, was the prime theorist of eugenicism, and uh, they took it and ran with it. That's Otto Freundlich on the cover, very good Czech-born artist who's now got his first retrospective show now in Frankfurt, which is rather good. There's Hitler enjoying all that degeneracy. It was actually degeneracy which I saw in the Leicester City Art Gallery and Museum, which has a very good collection of expressionist, German expressionist art. I saw it as a kid at school, and I thought, God, if this is degeneracy, I want more of it. I really am interested. Yeah. So, if, so if, this, was a, this was an exhibition of degenerate art that was put on in, 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 in Berlin? In, 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 uh, in Munich, in, in 1937. And, uh, yeah, it was... Open to the public and so on, that people could go and see what oh, was bad people art. flocked, flocked. to see it. They <laughs> flocked to see it. And it was, it was mocking it. Um, so but, there were captions uh, saying, this is rubbish sort of thing, this is degeneration. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, there were hang, hang sideways some things on the floor. You said these are... Uh, and what ooh, happened ooh, to them afterwards? Were a lot of them destroyed? A lot of them were sold abroad. And mm. those they couldn't sell abroad, they burnt, along with the books. Now, this is what Hitler liked. Uh, he had it in his, uh, over his mantelpiece in his Munich apartment. It's by Adolf Ziegler, who was otherwise known as the German master of the pubic hair and is called The Four Elements. <laughs> Very stirring work. I rather prefer Medvedkin. Now, people feel that there was no resistance to Nazism. It was very difficult. A lot of artists left, became refugees. Uh, Willy Baumeister, who was an extremely good abstract painter, decided to stay, as did many. This is a work he made in 1942. He couldn't make it in his studio because it had been billeted by SS officers. So he made it somehow. The, uh, the Germans call this kind of work as ungemalter, unpainted. It, it was against the law to make a painting like this. And um, Baumeister went along to the official exhibition of German art in 1937. So you had your degenerate one, which hundreds and thousands of people went to see, and then this one, which very few people went to see, which is a Gross Deutsche Kunstart along the greater German art exhibition, and uh, this kind of work was in it. And you can see uh, uh, Arno Brecher's uh, uh, The Avenger, and Baumeister, sometime in the 1940s, it's a postcard of the work, he drew this, uh, this face on its willy, uh, which is very childish, I know, but somehow heroic in 1940s to do that when the SS officers are next door. And no one really knew about this. Did I, he I, get away with it, or not? was he arrested? Because he of wasn't that? arrested, no. I, I, uh, I found this in, in 1994, and I went to see his daughters. And he'd never been shown before. They just hoiked it out, because I was interested in the wartime. And um, no, it, it, it's just a statement. What can you do? If you know uh, Hans Verlader's book, Alone in Berlin, I mean, which is a tragic story of very uneducated people who make their protests and die for it. I mean, very, very difficult to have, to express yeah. autonomy. But, but there were people who did it, and I think that Baumeister did it on a magnificent scale. And these are paintings, I mean, of, of, of different kinds that uh, 
I'm sorry, not captioned, uh, that were uh, in the exhibition, or in the exhibition downstairs, this one by Constantine, New One, New Planet, 1921. Well, you're not sure really what's happening there. Is it, is it good, or is it, is it the beginning of something or the end of something? <laughs> Looks as though a bit, uh, a bit scared about it. Um, and that's a, one of the strange things about the exhibition. It's called Revolution. In, 100th anniversary of 1917. Uh, there's no exhibition of that title going on in Russia this year. And uh, what's the message? What, what are they saying about revolution? We know it ends in tears. I mean, most things do, if they're not properly done. French ones certainly did a lot quicker. Um, but uh, anyway, Marc Chagall, 1912, in his shtetl in Vitebsk. Uh, Boris Custodia, very famous painting of red flags and uh, people out in the streets it's from very soon after, I think it's 1919. And then Alexander Dienicke. Now these are very straight, very straight, well, not, not Chagall, but very straight painting like that. And then you have Dienicke, who is uh, a realist, but he's someone who's obviously quite edgy. And uh, not all realists were hacks, and not all... Uh, not all um, abstract artists were untalented at all. That there were all these shades in between. And artists, in fact, were trying to read what was happening and to make good work that they were happy with, that actually they felt uh, would, um, would do the job. And this is really the point, that artists felt, well, yes, uh, we do have to help the revolution, so we'll work on industrial products. A lot of artists started to work on ceramics and textile design, particularly textile designs, um, or industrial products, or uh, architecture, uh, photo documentation. They would work as reporters rather than as photographers, and they called themselves reporters. And, um, and it just really got worse and worse for them. Now, let me move now to Edmund. Um, so you, yeah, you get the clicker now. I can clip for you, if you like. <laughs> you tell me when to clicker. You haven't had to work uh, under a repressive regime, but a lot of your work is inspired by political repression. I mentioned they're working Guantan Guantanamo um, and uh, in a day, indeed, in a, in a, in a house uh, in the UK where somebody was under a control order. How did you first get involved? Well, what inspired you, if you like, to get involved in, 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 in documenting the war on terror? Um, well, yes, I suppose my work is about kind of overwhelmingly, in particular the work in the Imperial War Museum, about kind of the unseen processes and experiences and places of the war on terror. Um, but I suppose it's the spectacle which first engaged me with the subject. It's the kind of the relationship between those images of men in orange jumpsuits um, from the opening of Guantanamo Bay, the, the prison camps there, uh, men bound and gagged and shackled and you know, represented as the worst of the worst. And then um, the fact that men who were British citizens had been held in Guantanamo came back and were held for one night in a police station and then released to go home to their very British homes as innocent as you and me, yet forever living with that representation attached to them. So this kind of um, disconnect between the spectacle of guilt and threat and fear that were associated with them we saw on our screens and the very ordinary lives they were then trying to go and live. Um, so that's what it first engaged me with the subject. Let's talk about uh, the, what, uh, 
talk us through some of the images we're going to see here. So this is your exhibition at the Imperial War Museum. What are we looking at here? Uh, so this is um, a, a detail from the first room um, in the exhibition. Uh, there's kind of two things you're looking at there. On the right, you're looking at um, a redacted page from uh, a CIA document um, into their own um, interrogation processes. <laughs> Um, and that's, that's part of kind of the documentation which came out of the work I did on the secret prison program uh, through a collaboration with a counter-terrorism investigator called Crofton Black, who was kind of putting together a paper trail uh, of material for potentially legal purposes, for forensic purposes. He shared that material with me. And as I went through these thousands of pages of documents, I kind of did a curation with him of, of what was important for him in terms of evidence but also what, for me, I just found incredibly interesting in terms of a visual language of the war on terror and the, the, bureau the bureaucracy and the documentation. And this is an example of that. I mean, this, this uh, internal CIA report um, was heavily redacted, and this brings out this kind of the black rectangle, the strikeout, which is sort of the visualisation of obfuscation I mean, there's, almost, there's no text left at all in There's that, actually the letter G sticking out of <laughs> the drawing line. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, on the le just to the left of that is an installation piece called Orange Screen, War of Images, which is kind of a narrative of um, the events uh, of the War on Terror from uh, 2001 through to the present day, which I'm trying to explore through images. Um, but rather than actually showing you those images, what I do is I kind of remember iconic images I associate with particular events in the War on Terror, and then I just describe them in very simple words. It's, technically, it's called an ekphrasis, a kind of a textual description of a visual piece of art. Uh, and the idea is it's kind of trying to get people to re-remember the image, but re-remember those images out of the context of the kind of the screens on which they would have originally seen them, the news broadcast, the propaganda video. So to take them out of those contexts and then have to re-remember the events as well. So it's about kind of spectacle and memory. And the colour orange is there because, in a sense, the two figures which uh, kneel at either end of the time span of the work I've done in this, in this exhibition are the, the men in orange jumpsuits from Guantanamo Bay, and obviously the people kneeling in orange jumpsuits in the deserts of Syria and Iraq in the ISIS videos that we are now seeing, there is a reason why those people are wearing orange jumpsuits, and that's kind of a direct connection. Um, this is uh, the second room in the exhibition. On the left-hand side, you see most of the book uh, I've made about the secret prison program uh, called Negative Publicity, and that comes from... Um, uh, a court document about uh, a contract dispute between um, a company that hires out aeroplanes and a company that arranges flight schedules, and it's a dispute over how many hours this plane flew. Uh, and there was negative publicity about this plane because. And this was this was the, this this was ex the part of the extraordinary rendition program. This was taking Absolutely. people who'd been snatched off a street yeah. in Athens or Rome or whatever yes. and taken to a prison in yeah. Cairo where they were yeah. interrogated by yeah. British and American... Or Eastern Europe. I mean, most Eastern of the, the, yeah. the uh, American secret prisons, uh, the black sites, were in Eastern Europe. But, yeah, it's, it's about that process and the fact that that process wasn't run by the CIA. It was actually outsourced and run by small companies, very ordinary private companies. And a lot of these sites that were used... Um, were in very quiet, ordinary places like, a, you know, a, a suburb in Bucharest or um, a, a quiet village in a, outside yeah. the capital of Lithuania. Um, as we go through, this is more of the work from uh, Guantanamo Bay. These are some of the, these are photographs from um, the homes where British citizens who were held in Guantanamo Bay 
uh, are now living or were living when I first started to work with them. So this is kind of where the work started, looking at these kind of spaces and the disconnect between these very ordinary British images and the representations uh, we see of them. Uh, we're back to the first room in the exhibition. On the right-hand side, you see uh, a huge image of a, a very natural thing, a forest, a landscape, uh, something we're all familiar with. Um, but forests obviously have this kind of mythical, um, symbolic role in literature as places of quest and journey and challenge. Um, and it's a landscape where you can't see something. There is something redacted there. You're walking into a redacted landscape. What thing, have you, what's been redacted there? The thing you can't see is the house where uh, a rendition flight pilot lives in the United States. Uh, so a man who was responsible for um, carrying the cargo that was the cause of the negative publicity about the planes that he flew. That's and where you went there was. to meet him? I didn't, certainly didn't meet him. I went there to photograph his to house. To photograph Yes, yeah. yes. And the image is redacted because do I actually want to point a finger at someone, make it that personal? I'm uncomfortable with that but also because legally in the United Kingdom um, he has uh, an expectation of the right to expect um, secrecy, sorry, security and privacy in his own home. And obviously that's something which wasn't afforded to the cargo in his plane. And that kind of narrative becomes part of how I show the work. So the reason for why I've redacted that image becomes part of the contextualization of that image. And so it's another way in which kind of censorship and control um, has affected my work, and that is bringing the way in which that shapes my work is a part of the point of what I do, showing how my work has been controlled uh, either by myself or by the American military, the American government or the British government is a part of what I'm trying to explore because this is about how terror affects all of us. These are about measures which are taken on our behalf by governments we have elected um, who are trying to protect us from the very real threat of terror, but also from that conceptual possibility of what might happen and the paranoia of being held accountable for not having carried out enough protection on our behalf. Uh, shooting through here now, this is um, an installation called Section 4, Part 20, One Day on a Saturday, um, which involves imagery produced by Guantanamo Bay. So what you're looking at there is a detail uh, of a scan. Um, it's a scan of um, an image which someone has chosen to send to a man they've never met uh, in a cell uh, in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, uh, sent as a gesture of support. Now this particular person um, was at the highest level of kind of non-compliance. Every detail of his life was controlled by his interrogators at Guantanamo Bay, including when and if, in what form, in black and white or colour. So it's a greeting, this is a greeting card that Absolutely. was sent to one of a the A message prisoners. of support sent to someone, which goes through a process of scanning, redaction, stamping, archiving, these kind of different interventions, a process of degradation, visual degradation. So it's an image created by the bureaucracy of control at Guantanamo Bay, which is then used in the exercise of control over him, because if he gets it, when he gets it, is decided by his interrogator. And because some of the material is quite strange, it added to his kind of sense of paranoia, because being at Guantanamo is about making people paranoid. It's about making them disorientated. This particular, that installation uses those images together with two voices. One voice uh, reading from the Camp Delta standard operating procedures, which are the kind of the minutiae of daily control at Guantanamo, including the measures for how mail is, is handled. And another voice reading from um, 
an episode that happened one day on a Saturday, which is a very unofficial interrogation process uh, where a female interrogator uses her sexuality to culturally, um, yeah, you can imagine. So you're given access to, uh, can you just go back actually to Ronald McDonald there? So this is in, in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, how, much, how much were you subject to censorship yourself? Because presumably you can't just wander around Guantanamo and take, whatever, take pictures of whatever you want. So how did that work? Um, while I was in Guantanamo, I was escorted everywhere. Now, there's kind of two experiences of Guantanamo. This is on the naval base, um, where you are escorted everywhere, um, but you're kind of pretty much allowed to photograph whatever you want. If there are things which are not allowed to photograph, they will say, you can't photograph I'm assuming that. McDonald's is for the guards, not the prisoners. You're correct, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, they're not allowed to rock up for a, you know, a Big Mac. Um, in the prison camps, the control is, is much more acute. You, before you go, you agree not to photograph certain things. You have mm. to work with a digital camera so that they can see your photographs at the end of every day. You can't photograph security cameras, which is difficult, because mm. they're everywhere. You can't photograph people's faces. You can't photograph unmanned watchtowers. You can't photograph more than one watchtower in a picture. Uh, you can't photograph the sky and the sea in the same picture. So if you have any of those problems, they go through the images and they say <clears throat> that, you know, that has a security camera in it that has to be deleted and you delete the file on the camera there and then and you sign a form agreeing to the deletion and agreeing that you won't try and retrieve that image. But they let you take this. Now explain what this is because this is really chilling, this chair. And actually, I don't know, you maybe can't see if you're at the back, but there are drops of blood actually on the floor. I mean, what do they use this chair for? That's a mobile force-feeding chair. Um, this is for prisoners on hunger strike yeah. in Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was actually in the prison camps at a reasonably um, <clears throat> open period. Um, I was there in Guantanamo about May 2009 after Obama had come into power. So he had said he was going to close it within a year. Uh, so I was there and I fortunate that I was able to get access to see things which people didn't normally see. Kind of so is that why they let you in, do you think? Because it was at that period of time when, you know, you, Guantanamo, we thought then it was the end of it. And so it was a more liberal regime. I mean, I'm trying to <clears throat> find out what was, why would the state, why would the US state allow you to photograph these things? What was in it for them? Well, I, I wasn't the first well, I wasn't the first photographer to go there. Uh, I was probably, I think I was the first person to go and work in the way that I worked, but a news agency photographers had been in there. They had gone in to, to, to photograph. Um, I, I, I think two things. One, I think there was a relative atmosphere of openness. Um, you know, it was, they were very keen on showing that they were carrying out their duty of care, that they were looking after people, that. Um, it was all very clean and tidy, and you didn't see anything horrible. And actually, if you take my photographs of Guantanamo out of context of the other images, they are very clean and very tidy. So they, they're using you, actually. Well, because the, the second thing is the forms of um, censorship that you have to deal with. And obviously, you know, you, you are shown certain things, and you, have, you don't have to push to see other things that you know are there. This um, is a family visiting room, I think, isn't it? No, this is this yeah. is where someone is living once they've been released from Guantanamo back in the Middle East. That's, that's an image from Kuwait. But yes, the kind of imagery which typically came out of Guantanamo fed into that visual narrative of 
uh, demonization and dehumanization because the news agency photographers were looking for images of shackled ankles or out of focus people or military figures. It all deliberately or not deliberately was feeding into this idea of terror and the spectacle of terror, reinforcing the fact that these people living in their homes in the United Kingdom with their anti macassars on their, their chairs are supposed to be the people that plan 9-11. Yeah. So you were more interested, if you, uh, I mean, apart from okay, this image, which is quite scary, but you were more interested in the, in, the, in, the, in the sort of, in the banality, really, in the everyday lives. I mean, let's just go through some more of these images. This is, a, of, this is where people are living when they've been released. Oh, that, that's an image from the, um, the naval base commander's house at Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> nice chandelier. That's an unused communal area in Camp 6. Now we're on to control of the house. I mean, what, what I do with the Guantanamo images is I have these three spaces. The photographic images are the prison camps, people's homes post-Guantanamo, and images from the naval base, which I mix up together, and I don't tell you what you're looking at. So the visual narrative becomes about disorientation and dissonance, which is in some way of trying to get across the idea of what, what living there and being controlled there is like. They must have, and this is the, so I'm interested in how you were viewed by the state. So this is um, a letter from the Home Office, in, Home Office giving you permission um, uh, to go ahead and spend uh, a week uh, with a British citizen who's under a control order for terror. Yeah, this, this is a project called Control Order House, um, which is about the use of control orders in the United Kingdom, which were introduced in 2005 which are effectively a form of detention without trial based on secret evidence. Um, so in, you know, effectively overturning 800 years of the principle of habeas corpus, which we have had in this country, um, which I wanted to respond to because I thought that was actually you know, a hugely important moment in our history. Um, yes, I asked to do some work with a control order subject uh, and um, through some of the lawyers who work with these people, I was eventually able to meet someone who was living under a controlled order, who I could meet without needing the permission of the government, uh, the Home Office, um, who agreed to work with me. And so I applied to the Home Office and they said, well, he has to apply to us. So we got through the lawyers, he applied to the Home Office. You don't know anyone's names, you're just dealing with control order officers at the Home Office. Um, and they gave me permission to enter a house where a terrorism suspect has been removed to live um, under the, the kind of the conditions of a control order, which included uh, being electronically tagged, uh, being restricted to moving only within a, an area around where he lived, to uh, having to report to a police station every day, to uh, um, letting the security forces, the police, come and search him and his house at any time. And is your... I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your, how you see your role in all of this. So we... I mean, going back to the, to, to, to the exhibition here, um, of uh, the, the role of, of, of artists in the Russian Revolution, I mean, clearly, a, a, a lot of them, and we saw that image from Chagall, for instance. Chagall goes back to Russia... Um, and um, and is very you know sets up a community arts centre in his in his, his his town and is and you know and sees there being a, a role for the artist in changing society. I mean, do you see your role, if you like, yourself as playing a a, a, a civic role, exposing some of these practices? 
Are you politically inspired? I think it's very important that I don't bang people over the head and say, this is what you're supposed to think about this. Now, when I talk about my work, it probably does sound a lot more political than the work is when you engage with it without me blathering on about it. And that's the whole point. I don't want to make... If work that I go to see, which is telling me before I even open my eyes what I'm supposed to think about it, doesn't engage me, it switches me off... What I'm trying to do is, yeah, I think these are incredibly important events. I think what has happened over the past 15, 16 years will, are immensely important events. You know, overturning 800 years of habeas corpus is fundamentally important for our society. I want to bring David back in here, because I think you said, David, good politics doesn't necessarily make good art. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, absolutely. Uh, I'm saying the same thing that you've just been saying. You don't want to bang people over the heads with stuff. But, uh, I mean, there's... I think art, if it's any good, there's a kind of moral dimension to it. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Um, politics should have a moral dimension as well. The Lord's just woke up to it, I'm glad to hear. Um, but, uh, unfortunately, it's so often missing. And uh, politics without morality, well, it's, uh, it's like going back to the 18th century and before. Um, but uh, it's very important, I think, that artists uh, try and make as good a work as they can. And I use that word advisedly because they're not, not to make art that is moralizing or moralistic. But, I mean, since the end of the 18th century, when we had this wonderful idea of Kantian autonomy, that art itself is an autonomous field, the artist, him or herself, has to make autonomous work, the idea of moral dimension, uh, in Kant's point of view, it was beauty, but as soon as you have beauty, you have its many opposites come into the field, and the artist has a conscience. And sometimes it's operating on a grand scale, as is the case with Goya, or with Jericho, Goya of King King of the 5th of May, or Jericho, the, the Raft of the Medusa. These were political scandals, both of them. Um, and uh, it happens in both small ways and large ways. Uh, but this is a moral engagement. Or, 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 or uh, the screaming popes of Francis Bacon. Let, let's talk uh, here about... Uh, I just want to move on to, to, to state funding. Um, because the, there are sort of roughly three models of, of, of arts funding in, in, in Western liberal democracy. So you have the, the US model, which is uh, private you know, philanthropy, um, sponsorship from companies and corporates. Then you have the, the let's call it the French-German model, um, where state funding uh, dominates, very, very generous. Um, and then you have the British model, which is much more of a sort of a, a mixed economy. What, I mean, you first, David, what would you say are the pros and cons of, 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 of these models? Well, um, the American one by itself is that you get uh, um, public taste dominated by, by collectors, basically, by people, the taste of people with money. Now, many people with money have made very good choices over the years. Um, it's not to say uh, there's anything bad with that, but I think society has developed, and particularly in Europe, and particularly in Britain, we have this idea of public space, public museums and art galleries, uh, which has been strongly eroded. But I think it's very important that as a, as a good artist must be, in a sense, disinterested from party politics, from 
wanting to do anything with their work, even from being misunderstood, they want to make just as good a possible work as they can, so the public space should be disinterested. It should be interested in really showing art in as true and as broad a way as possible, and as good a quality as possible. Now, there's not just one quality, there are many different kinds of quality. But this is absolutely fundamental to anyone who works professionally in this work, if you're not working for a commercial gallery in the public sphere. And sadly, one doesn't hear too much about this nowadays, but uh, it's absolutely fundamental. Arms length, funny. Um, Edmund, have Edmund, have you received um, Arts Council money? I mean, I know you've got your exhibition, obviously, in the Imperial War Museum, which is, uh, benefits from uh, a, a lot of government money. I mean, where do you stand on, on, on taking money from the state to fund your art? Um, well, some exhibitions that I've had have been... The institutions have been funded by the Arts Council. I've not received direct funding for my own projects, and that's partly the nature of the work that I do, is that it's incredibly difficult to predict where I'm going to get access to when, what the outcome's going to be. So I can't really go to institutions in advance and say, I'm going to do this, I'll finish it by June next year, we can have the exhibition then. I can't go through the bureaucracy, which you have to go through with the Arts Council to fill out all those forms, all the metrics and all the kind of guaranteed outcomes and guaranteed partners, and that's just not possible. So I can't how, do that. So how are you funded on the whole? I, my work has been funded by um, myself, by money which I've earned. Um, it's been funded by uh, grants I've got from other foundations. Um, those have been public foundations in some times. They have, uh, in other countries, they've been private foundations. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had individual sponsors have helped me with my work. It's through selling work that I, it also helps make money. It's prize money that I've won. So where do you stand on that? And I, say, I, I, you know, I laid out these sort of the, 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 the three models. I mean, do you think that the British model, which is essentially this mixed economy, of, uh, <laughs> works best when... I don't know what works best. It's a, it's a very complicated picture. I mean, I can, talking from, you know, going back for a moment to the role of the artist, and I, mm. I think, yeah, the market is obviously, never mind political uh, intervention, the market intervenes. And I think artists are kind of driven, and to really simplify this, you almost, you almost have a spectrum of people making work which is holding a mirror up to the society that we live in, and people are making work which is kind of making work to entertain the very rich. Now, that's a very crude, very crude way of putting it. But you kind of, that is a spectrum. And perhaps the best, mm. the most effective people, the ones who meet in the middle, who entertain everyone, but are making work which is showing, you know, putting a mirror up to the society that we live in. Mm. And I think the institutions, you know, I think one thing I will say about public funding is I think, it is in, I think it's imperative for, for a society, for a culture, for, a, for our, us, to uh, fund work to be made that is consciously allowing people to hold a mirror up to the society that we live in. I think it is a part of a, kind of a government's duty to understand the contribution that art can make to the discourse about the nature of the society that we all live in, the, 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 the people that are electing those governments that enriches us. Mm. Now, but having said that... Um, so the Imperial War Museum showing, and I think there's a few more of these images we can show, showing images like this of, uh, um, of the war on terror is acting as um, 
a civic space, if you like, where these sort of issues can be discussed? I, 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 in, in one level, I think it is. I think it's incredibly interesting that that uh, the Imperial War Museum, uh, you know, they want to put on work which uh, reflects uh, the as full a spectrum of possible um, contemporary ex contemporary experiences of conflict. Now, my work is about contemporary conflict. Um, but it's at the same time, it's quite problematic for them. So, the, the, you know, I think it, it's very important that an institution like the Imperial War Museum, obviously I'm going to say this because they've got my exhibition on, but they put on work which is contributing to debate and discourse about what's happening now. Now, there is work in my exhibition which directly relates to cases which are going through the courts now about government complicity. They knew that when they put my work on, and that's very brave, but that's, you know... So they didn't censor you at all on anything? Uh, not really, no. They didn't. Slight hesitation there. Well, there was a, <laughs> there was a discussion about how, we, how the institution would talk about these subjects. Mm. And that was a very interesting discussion about how we would contextualise terror and the different participa participants in terror from their perspective. I think about funding, there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch, wherever it comes from, whether the government pays for it or someone else pays for it. And uh, certainly with, with my museum director hat, I was always aware of that. And the other one, other great cliche, is uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And uh, you need that kind of freedom to be able to move between one or the other. Otherwise, they'll, they'll nail you, whoever so, it so is. So what was your experience working in countries like Germany and Sweden, for instance, where, there's a, you know, where the government's very involved in, in, in the funding of the arts? Yeah, well, it was much easier than here, I have to say. Mm. And uh, were there strings attached? Um, no, not really. Mm. Um, no, they took a great pride. I was director of the National Museum of Modern Art there. They took a great pride in their, in their museum. This it was is a in new Stockholm. building in Stockholm. Yeah. Um, I was open till 10 o'clock at night. I met the chief minister, the prime minister there, after he'd, nine o'clock, who was walking around the galleries and this kind of thing. I mean, and the foreign minister, politicians used to go there regularly. I'm sure Theresa May is doing that at the table. I'm sure she is. <laughs> so, no, I mean, that, that, it was some... I mean, the problem here, and really, before I left Britain, which is now 20 years ago, I did write this uh, in an article, was that both the left and the right try to instrumentalize art in some way. Mm. So the, uh, the Tory view is it should satisfy demand, and so there's a market out there, mm. and so the, the stuff which will be sucked up by the market is the good stuff. And then uh, the Labour Party, in the jargon of the late 80s, early 90s, they were talking about empowering the audience. Well, that's great, yes, empower the educate them. Uh, they don't need empowering, they need education and, and, and access. That's the most important thing. But actually, the, the, the art is in the middle there. You know, the importance of art itself and what artists do and mm. why they're so precious, the good ones. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of junk out there, but the good ones. And, and, and that it is this disinterestedness, which I was talking about, which is so precious, that the fact you can be mm. ambiguous... Arts you... for art's sake, rather than the 80-page form that Edmund was referring to, <laughs> where you have to fill out the access and education. And well, so it's, not, it's not only a formalist thing about itself all the time, because artists are engaged with life. I mean, it, 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 it's of life, runs parallel to life, and sometimes about a life. Um, so it's not just for its own sake, but it, but it is this separate field. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. Um, I think uh, you know, the market is key here. I, I'm not going to... 
you know, I'm someone who makes art, uh, who goes and takes beautiful pictures, I hope, in somewhere like Guantanamo Bay, which is deeply problematic, and then I, I put them in commercial galleries. Mm. Now, that's a very, very <laughs> tricky thing to do. So people buy those... Ronald McDonald pictures, rich people, and put them on their walls. Occasionally, and, yes. And yeah. I, I think that's interesting. And get aesthetic enjoyment I out think of that's interesting. Refreshing. And I actually think that, you know, that's, that's good. I think having my work seen at art fairs is actually politically good. I think making that kind of work mainstream and by putting it into the market is making it mainstream. I think it will in some way. It's one of the audiences that I try to reach. Um, just kind of about America, I've, I've got a, my work's going to be shown in New York next year, which is going to be, the response to that's going to be very interesting because, um, I mean, I've had two American museum curators say to me, one of whom acquired my work um, for a very prestigious uh, photography museum, who said, I've managed to get the trustees to acquire it. Now, they're all Republicans, so we'll never show it. <laughs> but they've bought it. Uh, and I've had another museum curator say to me, if I showed your work, I'd lose my job. So, that's, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's not a free country, yeah. is it? Well, that, that brings me neatly on to, to Russia, actually, um, uh, now. So we'd spoken about Russia in the past, but, and David, you've, you've spent quite a lot of time um, in, in, uh, in Russia at the moment. Um, what's happening to art? How much freedom do artists have there now? Things are, are a little bit rough there. The, the, the one thing you can't do is blasphemy. That's the worst thing. Um, to the Pussy Riot girls. Uh, pussy yeah. Riot girls, and yeah. the church is, uh, is teamed up with the government in a, in a very sort of right-wing and uh, rather discriminatory way. But, but in spite of that, um, uh, people get on and make the work. Uh, this is by a group called uh, Stordelet, and they made this uh, kind of... Uh, it's a video, and uh, what they call a songspiel, using Brechtian term. Uh, where they sing all these songs about the corruption of perestroika. Tyranny is dead, yet the businessmen come in and they rip everyone off. That's basically the storyline there. And then there are three noses. Uh, one of the lads is from uh, Novosibirsk, the other is from Yekaterinburg, so the other side of the Urals. Uh, one of a series of works they made about people kissing. So there was a, a Jew and an Arab and two, uh, two uh, Russian cops kissing. And uh, Ladislav Mamishev Monroe. Uh, he's a kind of half Marilyn Monroe, half, half Andy Warhol of, uh, of Russia. Uh, so the image of Putin. He's, that's him, actually. He's got a Putin mask on. He stars in all his works when he's not being Marilyn Monroe. There's Putin in Red Square on a T-shirt. And uh, he's holding this little puppy, and he's saying, don't worry, I'll look after you. So we're all puppies in <laughs> Russia. And no doubt we'll be puppies here, well, too, sometime. Uh, that's uh, Vladimir Dubajarsky. I mean, it's one of a, group, a whole group of artists who ironize socialist realism and the heroism. And there's a painting from the 1950s of Joseph Stalin in the middle, a real one, which didn't, and then children's book illustrations on the left-hand side and these kind of Japanese-looking Muppets on the right-hand side. Uh, Sergei Bratkov, a uh, wonderful... Uh, a Ukrainian photographer. These are, these are the Gopniks. These are the hooligans, the, the rightist thugs who go around beating people up. Um, and the slogan is, long live the bad things of today, for tomorrow will be good. Yeah, they're good at irony. <laughs> and ASNF, 
very, very interesting collective working in, in Moscow. This is a seven-channel video work, so it was shown in the last Venice Biennale, and I think it was 35 meters long, uh, and it's called uh, Inverso Mundus, the world upside down. And so you see uh, people gathering together, the powerful in society, and then they're confronted in their boardroom by the poor, and they change roles. So here you have a have a lady of the night is giving charity to businessmen and uh, uh, the rich. And there's the pig getting it back on the, uh, on the butcher. And then uh, these you know, medieval image, very consciously um, uh, citing uh, people like Bruegel and Bosch. And, uh, uh, and then these viral forms floating down in the new world. So again, ironizing very much the these ideas, these images of new world that you see downstairs. And the model, I mean, the funding, well, there's almost no state funding, is there, at the moment for contemporary art? Is it no. I mean, I mean, the poor old ASNF, they get really criticised because their production values are so good. Um, and they say, well, it's oligarchs' art. That's what, they, that's what oligarchs like. Yeah, well, yeah. some oligarchs like yeah. it, but, but, but no, they, they, as though they're, they're in favour of oligarchism, right. whereas they're pulling apart, absolutely critiquing uh, Russian society and the way it's gone now. Their previous um, work was called uh, The Feast of Trimalchio, you know, from the uh, Satyricon, showing decadence and in a multicultural dream world um, based not in Moscow but in some la-la land far away. This is work by a very young artist who's just graduated from the Rochenko School in, uh, in Moscow and it's one of uh, uh, a series of works called True Lives uh, and uh, it's of people undergoing transgender. Uh, and I put this in, really, I mean, it was a wonderful series of works, but she, she went around and interviewed people and photographed them as they wanted to be shown and also told their stories. So Can I, yeah, let me just read the, the bottom mm. uh, for people who don't know. Um, Nastya, 46-year-old transgender woman, worked as a train driver in the past. Quote, a few years ago I realised that it's impossible to run away from yourself. I already had two grown-up children, a son of 19 and a daughter of 10, so I decided to quit the job that I hated and live the life that I had dreamed of for a long time. Yeah, so there's 12 works of different people in this line. And it's a time when these Gopniks, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, people, um, gay people, LGBT people, uh, are really beaten up in the streets, as are migrants, and there's a lot yeah. of violence. So the, the Gopnik gangs go around beating up people. Oh, like uh, that. Like, yeah, it'd be very yeah, dangerous yeah. to go out like that. Yet she's giving uh, a kind of voice, a vo real voice, and a, a sight of these people. Mm. This is by a, a Kazakh artist, Almagul Menlibayeva, and it's one of it's a six-channel video um, called Kochatka 22, and it's uh, set in Semipalatinsk, which is a uh, the uh, former Soviet nuclear test site. So she's really going and filming it as it is today, but also interweaving the history with it. You can see Yalta Conference here, uh, but also these strange fairy-like figures, women who are from the, uh, the steppes of Central Asia, uh, who sort of comment, they're like a chorus on the scene as they go ahead. Or the Ukrainians, that's uh, a little protest they made at the last Venice Biennale in the Russian pavilion. Uh, 
Now we're on to the Chinese. Now, the Chinese. Now, can we just flick through these very quickly, because I'm aware of time and I want to open up to the audience. So let's yeah, just... Um, very quick. Uh, David spent a bit of time in China, so I just asked him to bring some images of, of what's happening in, 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 in Chinese art. And perhaps when you, when you just flick through these, but explain to us how do Chinese artists negotiate um, working under a, a repressive regime? Yes, I mean... Uh, I mean, probably you all think that the only free artist in China, and he was locked up as Ai Weiwei. There's nothing could be further from the truth, as you will see. But this is from the Cultural Revolution. The cultural Re China had its Cultural Revolution 30 years after the, the Soviets. Uh, so Chinese Cultural Revolution, 66, 76, ended with the Gang of Four and uh, the death of Shou Enlai, poor Shou Enlai, who was against it all. And then there was a liberalization. And so 30 years of being cut off from the rest of the world and their own history suddenly took the, the cork out of the bottle and everything flew, flew in. So young artists went crazy in a they way. They had an explosion of contemporary Explosion of contemporary art. Yeah. And, and masses of art museums all over China. Well, now, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And private collectors as well. Um, and you get political pop. Yeah, so yeah. Mao, who was this iconic figure, is now satirized. That's a great painter, yeah. Yu Han. Uh, and you have the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, I think a few years ago, deciding to put art into their five-year plan. I think this was quite interesting, yes. building a museum. Well, they hated this to start off with. They thought it was just junk. But then they realized that everyone else was interested in it. It was actually worth a lot of money. Uh, so they took it rather seriously. It's interesting work, Zhang Peli. Um, it's called Hygiene. It's a video. It lasts about seven minutes of a man washing a chicken. Um, but it's made at the time when there was serious hepatitis epidemic uh, um, communicated by birds. And it wasn't recorded in the, in, the, in the media at all, but everyone knew about it. So, I mean, it's a, it's a reference to that very much strongly. Or Xu Bing, uh, he, was, he became uh, vice director of the Central Academy. Uh, this is made in June the 4th, when the students, uh, before the tanks went in in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And that's him in 1993. He had to go, you know, but he came back pretty quickly. He lived in the uh, United States. And during the Cultural Revolution, his father had been locked up. He saw his father put in a black hole. He was sent up to a pig farm in northern China. And he knew what he didn't know about pigs wasn't worth knowing. So he used this in, this, in his art. It's 1993. It's called uh, Transference. And one of the pigs has got Chinese characters stamped on it. One of it's got Roman characters stamped on it. And you can see which one's on top at the moment. Uh, anyway, what he was, and all philosophy books and books on art theory are strewn around the floor there. And he was interested, of course, in the noise the pigs made. It was huge, huge tremendous noise. And it only exists in a video. And uh, so his video is much about the reaction of the people watching it and the noise of the pigs as it is about the, the you know, slightly banal subject. Saiguo Chung, uh, a Fujian-based artist who moved to New York, and there he's making his little nuclear explosions. You can see the Twin Towers there. That was made in 96. And this is a work about terrorism by the same artist. Uh, it's called Im Importune. Sorry. Inopportune. Inopportune. And it's, n it's nine cars turning over in space with these lights sort of banging out of them. And uh, for him, it was about terrorism. And uh, it 
really, uh, you, you get this kind of progression. So it's like a stroboscopic light through this huge space. And he said it made him think that there's no action without cause and uh, no cause without effect. And when, when you think about terrorism, you know, do these people really want to do it? And it, you know, there's a kind of strange beauty created by it. So he made a lot of very conflicting statements, which are quite, um, you know, difficult to people. This was after 2001. This was a, a, a response made in the US by a Chinese artist in 2001. Ai Weiwei dropping a Neolithic pot, as he is wont. And then uh, towards uh, after 89, uh, the 90s was really quite a, a harsh time, it's called this period of cynical realism. And uh, artists uh, really made some very extreme actions indeed. Now this isn't hardly official art, it's called Eating People. Uh, it was made in the year 2000. And uh, human material at that time was very easily available from hospitals. Um, and a number of artists were using this kind of material, and it was shown in the exhibition organized by Ai Weiwei in China. The English title was Fuck Off. Uh, the Chinese title was uh, Work of a Rather Unconventional Tendency. Uh, but here by Sun, uh, Sun Wan and Peng Yu, uh, a work which there, it's a kind of love work where the blood is uh, coming through these two fetuses. And Yang Fudong, better known as a filmmaker, the first intellectual from 1999. So to get the feeling, for about three years, from 1988 to 2001, there was this real ferment. And then there was this huge moral revulsion, of course, uh, within China, within the Chinese art world, to the use of human material in this way. That actually, it was completely unreasonable. Of course, there um, some Buddhist background or Confucian background, Taoist, they don't take the dead body quite in the same way. You'll probably be reborn again. So, you know, there is a difference there, but still, they but, felt but it was it, pretty it, tacky. Illustrative, actually, of just how much freedom there was that they were allowed to do all of this. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Going back to Stalin, really, do you think that, if we, if we call it propaganda, do you think the propaganda actually worked and did it create kind of mind forged manacles in the in the, in the in the Russian people's psyche and perhaps was it was it more powerful than terror this this propaganda through art and therefore perhaps was in in a more broader sense is control of opinion more important than force in in, in liberal democracies and well, mm. well. well, yes, they do go together, and uh, you had uh, Hitler and Goebbels as well. Uh, so control of media is very important. Um, but I think that the, the kind of unanimity, the, the search for unanimity, and uh, with Stalin, it was in 1934, they, they formed an art union of artists, and to be an artist, you had to be a member of it. And then if you were a member of it, you, had to, you were given jobs, and you had genre and topics, so everyone had to work with the genre. So it might be working on the collective farm, or working in the mine, or doing the peasants. Uh, and of course, a lot of people were just appalled by that. And when this was first announced, Isaac Babel, um, brilliant writer, who I'm afraid was murdered uh, subsequently by Stalin, or at least by his henchmen, um, said, well, we've got lots of new genre here. But I have to say that, uh, and this is in public, I have to say that I'm going to create a new genre here. It's called the genre of silence. And in future, this is the one I will follow. 
very, very eloquent. I don't know if this is off topic, but I'm interested in knowing where the Chinese work is going now. Because I, I mean, I've seen a lot of work. There was an exhibition at the V&A from China and that sort of thing. But now there's been a period of time when this <clears throat> kind of response to the oppression took place and there was um, a lot of work done as a result of that. But now, what's happening now with the work? Well, they're still digesting. I mean, the, their um, cultural revolution was a very, very violent period, a 10-year period, uh, where lots of monuments were destroyed and people were murdered. Uh, and society was turned on its head. I mean, like the Inverso Mundus, that the intellectuals were, were ridiculed, tortured, and sometimes killed. And uh, there's still a lot of... Uh, talk about uh, where power is and, and uh, uh, discussion about it. I mean, but that discussion is, is quite coded. I mean, for instance, there's a, maybe I can just quickly flip through. Here's a good example. An artist called Shen Xiaomin. It's a summit, uh, 2010. It's got five world leaders, Lenin, Ho Chi Minh, Kim Il-sung, and Mao Zedong, all dead, and Fidel Castro on an iron bedstead, panting away. And I said, still on his last legs. Uh, this has been shown outside China, but it's going to be shown uh, this, at the end of this month in Hong Kong uh, as part of the art fair. And it's in particular the figure of Mao, which is, uh, which is quite controversial. Now, he made in 2008 um, uh, a work just about Mao called The Great Corpse. And he was really obsessed by the, the mausoleum. Mao's mausoleum is there, still in Beijing. And so he did a model, life-size model, of the dead Mao with the, you know, they take the organs out and all that, so with the scars and stuff, naked on a, on a hospital trolley. And then next to him, his uniform and the Chinese flag um, folded up. Now, this is in the collection of M+, which is the museum in Hong Kong. It's been donated by Uli Sig, who's a big collector. It hasn't been shown yet, uh, either outside China or inside. So, I mean, those are, that's kind of very obvious. Um, but, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, work about control and power. Um, that's a Mongolian artist. I mean, this, uh, made by Wang Ching Song. Uh, as you can see, Statue of Liberty wearing a Mao jacket uh, with Chinese bamboo scaffolding about it. Could be something to do with the Chinese having such a huge investment in the American national debt. Uh, don't tell President Trump about that. <laughs> and uh, Edmund's gallery is not going to be buying that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's kind of nice one to end up on. Um, this is someone, Pong Yu, the, the couple who had the fetuses earlier. This is a much more recent work, which they made in Hong Kong. And it's a hundred paired photographs. And they, uh, Hong Kong is fueled, it's kept going by Philippine, Filipina guest workers who work there. And so they all gather on their day off or half day off on Sunday in the public spaces in Hong Kong, very often under the HCSB bank. And uh, they approached a hundred of them, and they said, if we give you a little uh, toy hand grenade and the camera, will you take it to where you work and put it in your favorite spot? So here the dog gets it. Uh, very often the playpen does, I'm afraid, the baby pen. Um, and uh, 
and they took it. So there's a hundred of these, and then a hundred shots from behind of the different workers who, who did it. It's a very eloquent work and rather subtle. Thank you for very interesting talks. Can I just go back to the beginning where you um, mentioned that two of the guests hadn't um, been able to join us, and the fact that in Russia they're not necessarily celebrating the 100-year anniversary. Um, how is this exhibition, um, how would it be viewed in the current political climate in Russia? And what support, if any, have we had with it? Well, I think it's completely kosher. Um, there's an awful lot of realist painting in it. Uh, you've got one genius, and that's Malievich. No one's going to disagree with that. Uh, there's very little analysis, uh, complicated analysis of, uh, of different points of view and factions in the Russian art world. Um, from 1917 to 1932, which it covers. So it's a very... Uh, what so, you... so it would be viewed quite favorably? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, and yeah. the topics that you go through, you've got the, you start off with the leader, and then you go into labor, and then you go into the new world. Then you have Malievich for a moment. Then you get some peasants. Then you get eternal Russia. Uh, and then you get Tatlin. Um, and then what do you get? You get a new city. Then you go back in time. You, get to, you go back to um, the war communism and the uh, NEP, the new economic policy, the beginning of the 20s. Uh, and then you end up with, uh, you know, with the sad, sad bit at the end. So I, mean, so I think the questioner was asking, would this be acceptable in, in Russia right now? And you're saying yes. Um, I'm, I'm, since we're not actually involved in the exhibition ourselves, I can't really answer about how much support it got. But I... I, I, but I think you can see some names um, of some fairly wealthy Russians who have donated to the exhibition. If you look at the beginning of it, um, you can see who it's sponsored by. Very quick question just here. Just uh, really about the power uh, you saw of art now. Uh, obviously, it was seen very much as the state as something neat that needed to be controlled and something that um, needed to be managed. And, and whether you still see that sort of perhaps over the last 100 years, has, has that changed and um, how's it seen now? Sorry, can you just say that again? The, the state needs to control us or...? The state controlling art and artists and whether... Um, whether anything's changed? Yeah. Since the, Russia the, the, in the, the last the, 100 no, years? No, no, just sort of how you see things is, is changing in terms of control um, and, and the power art has at... Um, uh, what the power that art has to challenge control. Exactly. Yeah. Um, interesting question. Um, I mean, you know, we're all sitting here quite smugly looking at the Russian Revolution, looking at this art produced by totalitarian countries, and obviously we are living our very own controlled society, but we kind of internalise that control. Um, you only have to kind of look at Deleuze and the postscript from the Society of Control, and I wonder what he would make about terror and how that is something which modulates our behaviour. I mean, I think, um, I think art, I mean, we've seen examples of art challenging that control, and I think that's vital. Uh, I mean, I'm, I really only feel qualified to talk about what I'm doing myself, and I feel not just my work, but other people's work, in a sense, is exploring this sort of vacuum which has come about through um, the lack of accountability that um, there has been for actions 
carried out by our governments in relation to not only kind of issues of control and incarceration and interrogation, but Iraq, Afghanistan. There has been this vacuum of justice and accountability for what has happened. Um, and I think artists are making work which in a sense perhaps can in some way produce discourse which may fill part of that vacuum, can make work which is drawing people's attention back to what is being done in our names but not being talked about, not being given any sort of process. I think the role of good artists to hold up a mirror, isn't it, to the society in which the artist lives. Mm. Certainly. Yes, to both reflect and also act. I think that's very important, not just be a mirror, but also to act. The market has certainly got a huge power at the moment. And I'm not against the market, but, I mean, the market has no brain. It's a mechanism. And it, um, it invests in what it knows and speculates on what it doesn't know. And there's an awful lot that it doesn't know. And it's those things that are outside its purview and the purview of those who participate in it. And there are an awful lot of very good artists outside that purview that I think that people in public sphere need to take into account yeah. rather than trying to be wannabe, uh, um, well, wannabe art dealers. Yeah, I think you know, we have to... You know, I talk about the way in which our society, in, we internalise control. Um, you know, the relationship between sponsors, institutions, collectors is not one which is in any way explicitly shaping the kind of work and the kind of art we get to see in our institutions. But you know, at some level, there has to be some kind of uh, a, a questioning, a decision-making process which takes into account what you know, work which may be offensive, which may be con controversial, which may be problematic for a sponsor. Uh, you know, does that form of control influence the decisions that are... Uh, institutional leaders are making about the work that they show. Does a collector coming to them and saying, I can offer you this complete body of work by this artist who has just made this, you can have it for your collection. That's kind of, that is a question that we need to ask. How do those kind of decisions affect the sort of work we see with all the, you know, the, the, the imprimatur of our institutions. That's making, that's shaping our cultural vision. Yeah, we need museum directors with guts. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, you're not paid to have guts nowadays if you're a museum director. You're paid to raise money. But well, I've got a good example of one who does, or did have, uh, Petrovsky, who's director of the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. He had a Jake and Dinas Chapman show, big one. And the church and all the right-wingers went crazy on it. And uh, he turned around to them. He said, look, I'm the director of this museum. I think it's a really good exhibition, and it should be going. I'm not going to stop it. And uh, good for him. He needs some guts. I think that's a good note to end on. So I'd like to thank both of my guests, David Elliott and Edmund Clark, for a very interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.